Uh, now, today, as, uh, as we think about uh, the whole area of sex, sexual purity, marriage, singleness, dating, just to say if you are a visitor here this morning, it's your, maybe your first time, it is not what we speak about the whole time. That's, that's just the first, make that clear. Um, but I am aware that as uh, we're going through the book of Ephesians, we've been going through it the last couple of months, and we get to chapter 5, both this week and next week, are, are focusing on those kinds of topics. Uh, and I'm aware, as we do that, that yes, it's an important issue, uh, but it all is also a controversial issue as well. So let me just start, first of all, by saying two things. First thing, obviously, well, I stand here as a married man. Uh, Susanna and I, we've been married uh, for 21 years, uh, and I'm aware that as I speak, I am speaking to many people in many very different relational situations than I am in and with very different relational histories to me. Obviously, I'm a man too, not a woman. Uh, and so, I, in a sense, I ask your forgiveness if I say anything that comes from me being blinkered from my particular lived experience. So that's the first thing. The second obvious thing, I, I don't just stand here as a married man. I also stand here as a sexual sinner, uh, a forgiven sexual sinner, but certainly a sexual sinner. I have sinned sexually in the past. Uh, I do sin sexually in the present. And sadly, I will sin sexually in the future. I am no different to any of you because I am a vicar. You know, I struggle with the same sorts of temptations that we all struggle with in all sorts of different ways. And so as I speak today, I am not speaking as a sort of superior in any way at all. No, I am speaking just as an equal. We're all equals in this. It is a challenge for all of us. But what I have tried to do to the best of my ability and saying, Lord, help me, is to get to grips with this Bible passage uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, this next bit of Ephesians, looking at God's word to us, trying to get to grips to it, with it. What does it mean as best as I can? And how does it apply into all of our lives uh, today? And you know, I'd say that there's one thing above all that I'm praying for, for all of us, from uh, this week and next week as we look through Ephesians chapter 5. I think it's this. I'm praying that each one of us, whatever our relational status, each one of us, that we would see and understand that God is not a killjoy. But we would see and understand that God, he is a good, good father who wants what is best for us in this area as in every area of life. That's my prayer. So I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to look at this passage, okay? Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we simply ask that by the power of your Spirit, that you would show us that you're not a killjoy, but that you're our perfect Father who longs what is best for us, even in this area of sexual purity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, picture the scene, would you? This took place quite a while ago. It's before I'd even met Susanna. I was working as a management consultant, and I was uh, staying in this swanky hotel for a week or so um, with about 20 other colleagues. Uh, times were different to uh, times now. Uh, the economy was good. Uh, business was booming. Um, the, the bar was open. Uh, the drinks were free. The drinks were flowing. Everybody was getting drunk. Uh, everybody except me. Now, I was tempted. Uh, to get drunk uh, with all my colleagues, very tempted. It, it would have been fun, I thought. But after a couple of hours that evening, uh, 
chatting to my drunk colleagues, uh, I decided to sort of head to my bed uh, in my room in the hotel, and I reflected. Purity, I thought. It's a little bit boring. But still, my, my room in the hotel, it was, it was quite good. It was very uh, deluxe. The, you know, the bed was huge. The bed was uh, wider than it was long. It was huge. And uh, I decided to uh, read my Bible and have a pray because I hadn't done that so far that day. So you can picture the scene, uh, an angelic scene, I must say. Uh, there's me. I'm in my pajamas. Uh, I'm sitting in bed uh, reading my Bible at 11 p.m. at night when there's a knock on the door. And in walks an extremely attractive colleague of mine and she sprawls herself uh, across my bed, the one that was wider than it was long. Now, I was tempted, very tempted, to take her up on her advances. Um, but um, I thought no, and what I did after chatting to her, I encouraged her to head back to her room in the hotel. And I got back into my bed, and I sat there, and I reflected. Purity, I thought. It's a little bit boring. Now, I tell you that little incident really because, if you like, the two questions that I want us to think about this morning come connected to that incident. Here's the two questions I want us to think through. Firstly, was I right to be bothered about sexual purity, or does it not really matter? And then secondly, if I was right, if, if sexual purity is important for the Christian, is there a good reason for it? You know, is God actually just a killjoy who just wants to put in place all these legalistic restrictions to spoil our fun? Is God just in the business of making life a little bit boring? So if you like, what we're thinking about, we're thinking about two questions. We're thinking about the what and the why of sexual purity. So first of all, sexual purity, what? Now, if there is one thing I think that best sums up the current sexual culture in our country today, it is probably the super popular TV program, Love Island. And if you are thinking I'm a bit extreme in suggesting that Love Island is the best indicator of our sexual culture in this country today, I'd ask you to think again. Love Island, it is the one TV program that I have heard a good number of parents from both of our teenagers' ch uh, uh, schools, both schools that our two teenagers go to, I have heard a number of parents from both of those schools describe Love Island as the one program that all members of their family, teenagers and adults, male and female, can all sit down and enjoy together. Uh, the former editorial director of the Sunday Times, she was writing in The Telegraph just yesterday, and she wrote this. She said, the show may be called Love Island, but it is really Sex Island. This generation, she's referring to sort of 18 to 30s, this generation's relationship code is so programmed by all the porn that they've been clicking on since they were kids that feelings, by that she's meaning the feeling of falling in love romantically with someone, that feelings are not in their sexual script. The ideal for them is to engage in as much vigorous, gym-honed, rumpy-pumpy as possible whilst keeping their hearts intact. In other words, whilst keeping their hearts free from the emotional attachment of actually falling in love romantically with someone. She says it may work in porn, but it is not a recipe for a happy love life. You see, that is the culture that we live in, the Love Island culture, sexual activity free from emotional engagement or commitment. 
And so the Bible's portrayal of sexual purity, it is radically opposite to that. I think it's best summarized in verses um, three and four. Just have a look at, down at verse three in your Bibles. Uh, it's coming up on the screen too. Verse three, Paul writes this. He says, among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. And that word, sexual immorality, it is the Greek word porneia. And when you look at all the times that that word is used throughout the New Testament, you can see clearly what that porneia, sexual immorality word means. It is referring to any sexual activity outside of lifelong exclusive marriage between a man and a woman. So if Love Island... If Love Island is sexual activity without emotional engagement or commitment, God's view is sexual activity should only be within the emotional engagement and commitment of marriage. In terms of sexual activity, the Bible, it is the polar opposite of our culture. And just to say as an aside, an important area for us to think through with this, but which is not in the Bible passage today, so we're not going to focus on it today, is how those who are same-sex attracted should express their sexuality. And I just want to say, please hear this. You are no more godly an individual, whether you're of homosexual orientation or heterosexual orientation or bi. You're no more godly, whichever of those you are, The question up for debate is not about sexual attraction, who we are attracted to. The question is not about sexual attraction, but about sexual activity. In other words, how should gay Christians express their sexuality? Is it by remaining celibate or a faithful same-sex, sexually active relationships okay in God's eyes? And so if you're wanting to think this one through more, can I point you to a sermon I did, I think it was three years ago now, Uh, where I looked particularly at what does the Bible say about homosexuality, and I tried to do it as completely and as compassionately as possible. It is a whopping 55-minute sermon. I think it's the longest sermon I've ever preached. Uh, So please do have a listen to that if you would find that helpful. Just head to our talks page on our website, uh, and you'll find it there. It's called Dilemmas About Sex, Part 2. But now, just look at how verse 3 continues. Look at how verse 3 continues. He goes, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. So if sexual immorality, the first half of that verse, if that's about our actions, if that's about our our sexual activity outside of marriage, then impurity and greed, the second half of the verse, they are not so much about our actions, but our thoughts, our thinking sexually. And, And you'll see there that greed word. That greed word, it's likely that even that greed word is referring to greed in a sexual context. In other words, a sort of greedy desire to have more of somebody's body for selfish sexual gratification. And so what we're seeing is in verse three, we are moving from impure actions in the first half of verse three to impure thoughts in the second half of verse three. And then we move as we go into verse four to impure words. If you look at the next verse, verse four, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So here, if you like, is the what of sexual purity. It includes our actions, our thoughts, and our words. And it flows from an understanding, not that sex is bad and dirty, no, but neither that sex is God and sex is to be worshipped, sex is to be idolized, sex is to be sought after no matter what. But rather, it all flows from an understanding that sex is, is not bad, sex is not God, but no, sex is good. 
Sex is so good, sex is so precious that it is only to take place in the context of that emotional engagement, that commitment of a marriage between a husband and wife. The whole Me Too movement of recent years it has been hugely important in so many ways, but in some senses, it doesn't go far enough. Because the Me Too movement says the prerequisite for sex is consent. And God says, no, 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 the prerequisite for sex, it's not just consent, but it is covenant. That covenant commitment of two people uniting together for life in the covenant of marriage. So that means there are two good options for the Christian, and both of them to be celebrated. Both have got benefits, both have got challenges, either sex within marriage or celibacy outside of marriage. Now, my guess is that right now, many of you are sitting there and you are thinking, well, it's all right for you to say that, Jago. You're married, so you get to have sex. Okay, I'm guessing that quite a few of you are thinking that. Okay, so let me say this. I think too often in Christian circles, the view is this. The view is get married, you're able to have sex, and all your problems of sexual impurity will just evaporate. Not true. Sexual impurity is all too rife amongst married people, including me and Susanna, in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts. What happens is our past has an uncanny knack of showing up in our present and our future. If we were sexually impure in the past as a single person, getting married does not cure that. Let me give you one example of that. Someone that I used to think about uh, far too much in a, in a romantic sexual way when I was a single person after Susanna and I got married, this person that I used to think about far too much, she kept on cropping up in my dreams in the first year of Susanna and, my being, and I being married. And it was the most difficult thing about the first year of our marriage that Susanna found that her new husband was regularly dreaming about another woman. You see, our past has a habit of turning up in our present. And so if you are here this morning, and if you are single and you'd like to get married, can I encourage you this? Please have your main focus, not so much on finding the right person to marry, but on becoming the right person yourself. See, the kind of person that you want to marry, they won't want to marry someone who is just focused on sexual self-gratification. So pray about that and work on that now. The kind of person that you want to marry, they won't want to marry someone that has an addiction to porn. So if that's you, pray about that and work on it now. Focus more on becoming the right person rather than finding the right person. And, and for the unmarried person, these, these verses don't invite us to think sort of how far can I go towards sexual activity whilst it's still being okay, but rather how far can I run from inappropriate actions and thoughts and words. Verse 3 again. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. You know, as Susanna and I, as we've done um, marriage prep sessions with engaged couples, we've probably done well over 50 um, sessions with an engaged couple. And we have never met a couple who regretted not going far enough physically as they've dated. But we have regularly, plenty and plenty of times, met those who regretted going too far either with each other or in previous relationships. Or just think of all Byron and Steph so helpfully shared with us. So that, if you like, is the what 
That's the what of sexual purity. But perhaps now, even more importantly, we need to answer the why. The why. Why is this what God wants? Why is this what God wants for us? Is God just a killjoy? You know, was I right sitting there in my bed, in my pajamas, in the hotel, was I right to think purity, it's a little bit boring? And to answer that, what I want us to do is I want to see this word in our passage that comes three times. The word has been translated in our passage, live, but actually it's the Greek word peripateo, which literally means to walk. And each time this word is used, it's portraying a picture, it's presenting an image for us of why you and I, we should walk down the road of life well. Why we should walk down the road of life well rather than falling into the ditch of sexual impurity. And the first time this image comes up of walking is um, walking a life of love. It comes right at the start of the passage, verse 1. Verse 1, Paul writes, he says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live, or literally walk, a life of love. Now, why? Why be sexually pure? According to these verses, why? Because, here's the truth, you are loved. You are loved by God. Look at what it says. It says, dearly loved children. And then we see, that, we see that love above all at the cross. Verse two, it continues. It says, live, walk this life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see, here's the truth. If, if it is just a list of rules, if it's just a list of rules that are stopping me or you from sexual immorality, if it's just a list of rules, a legalistic obedience to a killjoy God, when it comes to sex, the rules don't work because sex is so powerful. And the only way, the only way you or I have a hope of being pure in the sexual arena, whatever our relational status, the only hope we have is if we are walking through life in the light of God's great love for us. As we read the Bible, particularly as we look to the cross, we discover that fundamentally God, God is not some sort of grumpy policeman just trying to police our sex lives. God is not fundamentally a killjoy. No, fundamentally as we read through the Bible, what do we see? We see that God fundamentally is a lover. He's a lover, not a, not a love island lover who's just out for their own, sexual, their own personal gratification. But God is a lover a lover who puts his life on the line for us, his bride. A lover, in spite of all we do, including our sexual impurity, he continues to love us. Now, it's true that if we consistently, unrepentantly, are sexually immoral, impure, and greedy, verse 5, then we have the warning of God's judgment. And it's why, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, why having been so firm in chapter 4 about unity, unity was such a big focus in chapter 4, actually we now see Paul saying, verse 7, do not be partners with them. He's saying, do not be partners with those who say, live any way you want sexually. God can't tell you what's right and wrong. Paul says, don't partner with anyone like that. Don't be united with them because they're not looking to please the one who first loved them, God. So why be sexually pure? Why walk this life of love? Not because we are begrudgingly trying to tick the boxes to please a killjoy God. No, because you are loved. You're loved by God passionately and faithfully. And just like because of my love for Susanna, I want to please her. So because of our love for God who first loved us, we want to please him. Second reason, 
Second reason, second time walk comes up, we walk as a child of light. We walk as a child of light. Why? Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live, or literally walk, in, at walk as children of light. See, the motive for sexual purity here, uh, what Paul's saying is that we look back to those fruitless deeds of darkness of the past that he mentions in verse 11, and he says, we, we look back and we say, that is not me now. We say, I am transformed by Jesus. I am now a child of light. That transformation is staggering, and it's as staggering as moving from darkness to light. And he says we are called to live out what we now are. Look at that verse again, verse 8. You are light, he says, so live as children of light. Now, I have uh, um, an embarrassing habit of, um, of crying at inappropriate times. I once had to be told off uh, for crying too loudly on an aeroplane um, because I, I, was, um, I had my headphones on and I was watching a film, The Princess Bride, um, <laughs> and I was crying too loudly and had to be told off. Okay, So, so I, do, I, I do cry sometimes at inappropriate times. But there's another time um, once when I, I cried. Um, and that was when Susanna and I, we were giving a talk um, to about 80 teenagers about, about this subject, about sexual purity. And out of those 80 teenagers, there were three or four uh, boys who were probably age 15 or so, who thought they were pretty cool, pretty tough, and they asked all sorts of questions in this talk, like, if it wasn't okay uh, to have sex outside of marriage as a Christian, was it okay for their girlfriends to give them blowjobs and things like that? And as they said these things and asked these questions, I just burst into tears. Now, do you know why I cried? I cried because I knew how much hurt would be caused by the action of those boys. Hurt to other people, but also hurt to themselves as well. And it pained me. And it pained me because I knew how much hurt it had caused Susanna and me in the past that both of us, in various ways, although we hadn't had sex before we were married, we'd both done things sexually with other people that were far too intimate and which had hurt other people and hurt ourselves. I was reminded of the, the darkness and the hurt of the past, and that's why I cried. Now, most of us, we're older than those 15-year-old uh, boys but it is still exactly the same message for us all. You are transformed by Jesus. As a Christian, you have been transformed, darkness to light, so live as a child of light. Don't go back to the darkness. Because you know what? So often when people come into contact with this light of sexual purity and compare it to the darkness of sexual impurity, so often they begin to see things for what they are. Let me just give you one example. There was an article, some of you may have seen it, a few weeks ago in the Saturday Times magazine. An article about how so many people realize that their use of online porn has had a disastrous impact on their present romantic relationships, even into marriage. Because the exposure to all that porn, it has deadened their ability to be sexually aroused to all but the most extreme things. So why sexual purity? Why? It's not because God is a killjoy. But it is because as a Christian, you are transformed. Jesus has done the transforming in each one of us. And light, it is so much better than darkness. So he says, walk as a child of light. Because God wants the best for you. And he wants the best for me. And he set out what is best for us. And then third. 
this walk image, the third time it comes up is verse 15. It says, we walk as a wise person. We walk as a wise person. Verse 15, be very careful then how you live, or literally how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And perhaps one of the most unwise things that you or I can do when it comes to sexual purity is what comes in the next verse. Verse 18, if you look at the next verse, he goes on, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Now, I've got to say, I'm sure there are people here who need to hear the challenge of verse 18. I know most of the times in my life when I've most clearly fallen into that ditch of sexual impurity, alcohol has played a big part in proceedings. But just look at the contrast in verse 18. It is a staggering contrast. If the catalyst for sexual impurity is being filled with alcohol, being filled with alcohol, that's the, the catalyst for sexual impurity. Well, the catalyst for sexual purity is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled, literally go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying, under the influence of alcohol, we lose control. Under the influence of the Spirit, we gain control. And so if we want to be those who, where there is not a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity, can I encourage us all, don't be foolish. Don't get drunk. Don't even go near getting drunk so you can honor God with your body. You see, wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever our relational situation is, however young or old we are, as a Christian, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. God, the Holy Spirit, he lives in us and he witnesses all that we do, even the stuff that we think is in secret. And we read, well, we read in the passage last week, Last week it said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit who lives in us and knows all that goes on in our lives. So, so why sexual purity? Why do we bother? Why do we walk as a wise person? It is because as a Christian, that same Holy Spirit who witnesses and convicts us where we're being sexually impure in our actions and our thoughts and our words, that same Holy Spirit, what does he do? He also fills us. You are filled he fills us and he empowers us to take control of ourselves sexually, the opposite of what alcohol does. So it is not just that we are sort of struggling in our own strength to obey the rules of a killjoy God. No, what has he done? God has loved us, God has transformed us, and God has filled us. Filled us with himself. Now, as I close, please, can we remember... There is no place for judgmentalism here. No place for it. If you are sitting there feeling superior in any way, can I just remind you that your pride is worse than anyone else's sexual sin. And let's please be real as well. The truth is we will have all blown it in some way or other in the sexual arena. But you know, the amazing thing is this. You and I, we can know forgiveness, forgiveness which brings freedom. You and I, we need not be held in shame or in guilt or in condemnation because Jesus Christ offers us a fresh start today and indeed every day. Every single one of us, despite all the ways that we have got things wrong, verse one, if we're in Christ, it still stands, God says to you, dearly loved child, 
God loves us, God transforms us, and God fills us. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And so all of us, every single one of us, we need honestly to assess this area of our lives and assess some of the struggles we face. There will be, amongst loads of us, struggles with sin. There will be struggles with sin. Those having sex outside of marriage. Those using online porn. Those coarsely joking about others in a sexual way. Those too intimate with the person they're dating. Those having too much alcohol to drink. And then there will also be struggles, not with sin, but struggles with situations. Struggles with difficult situations that we might be in that can sometimes lead to us having to struggle with sin. So, you know, the the single person struggling with loneliness or rejection. The married person struggling relationally or struggling sexually with their spouse. Uh, The person struggling how to express their same-sex orientation. The dating person struggling with the other person that they're dating wanting to be more physically intimate with them than they believe is right. All of us struggling to have wisdom about what to view on TikTok, on Instagram, on Netflix when there's so much unhelpful content. And in our struggles, our struggles with our sin, our struggles with our situations, we need to bring them all to the Lord. And we bring them all to the Lord remembering what do we really think about him? You know, in my heart of hearts, do I think God is a giant celestial killjoy? Do I think God is out to make my life a little bit boring? Or do I think he is the most loving and kind person who longs for what is best for me and empowers me in my battle with sexual purity? And the gospel tells us how it really is. Jesus Christ, he is the most loving Lord. He died for you and he died for me and he has transformed you with his grace and he has sent his spirit to live in you and empower you and me from the inside out. Jesus Christ, he is not out to ruin your life, but to give you life itself. Shall we stand and let's pray?